What's up, queens? It's your host, Ro. Do you like female dating strategy? Would you like to see us expand on a lot of different platforms? Then please sign up for our Patreon. We are currently targeting a $10,000 per month goal, which would allow us to work full-time on female dating strategy content in order to expand on different platforms and upgrade our media presence. As a special thank you to our current Patreon subscribers, we will be increasing our upload rate for our bonus content to be weekly on Fridays, as well as offering a special discount for paid annual memberships so please check out our patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy that's patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy thank you let's start the show here's a segment we call roast to scrote our patreon subscribers send in a story of a scroat in their life and re-roast them yeah yeah so <laughs> this week's roast to scrote it's from Anonymous. Uh, it starts, In 2018, before FDS became a part of my life, I had been seeing a guy for around three months. We met through online dating and seemed to get along fairly well from the start. We were close in age. He had a good job, a nice apartment, and overall appeared to be in a good place in life. I had recently been having terrible luck with dating, so meeting this guy seemed almost refresh- refreshing. He was good at texting, respectful, and we did fun activities together. Every summer in my city, there's a fireworks show on the beach that thousands of people attend. I enjoyed attending it every year. We made plans to go together. I suggested we go early and have a picnic on the beach and volunteered to bring the food. He thought this was a good idea, and we agreed to meet up at his place after work and walk to the beach together as he lived close by. After work, I went home to change and bought sushi from a delicious sushi place near my house. When I met him at his apartment, he tried to initiate sex. I told him that I wanted to get going so he could get a good spot to watch the fireworks. He eventually agreed, but was sullen and grumpy. <laughs> God, 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 God. Okay. Uh, this is just the worst kind of guy. Yeah. Sleazy skirt. I mean, you watch the fireworks and then you have sex after, right? I don't even know what to say to this guy. It's like, no, have sex with me while the fireworks are going. Like, I don't know. <laughs> That's a bait and switch. I don't really like, um, like, when you know you have a deadline in the back of your mind, like, oh, I have to be somewhere at a certain time, and then, like, trying to relax and have sex at the same time just is, like, a no-go. I mean, I guess if you're, like, looking for a a quickie, but I feel like... I hate the concept of quickies. I'm not a huge fan of it either. It's because guys don't care, though. Like, they will get off regardless. It's women who need some extra... I don't know. Time and consideration. Attention and warm-up. Yeah. But they'll literally, like, they don't care. You can kiss, you can make out, or do, like, foreplay, and it doesn't have to be penetration, right? Yeah. I think that's the problem, is, like, every time men want to initiate any type of sexual contact, they want to always see it through completion, and, like, as a woman, it's... Don't blue ball me. Yeah. Yeah, don't blue ball me. And then, you know, there's a, there's a lot of women that have a personal preference, like myself, where I'm like, if we have somewhere to B, it's much harder for me to get like completely revved up to go. Like I'd rather just get started and then really, really into it. And then by the end of the night, then you're ready to go. Mm. But men, a lot of men seem to not get this concept. Yeah. Anyways, so yeah. shall we continue? Yeah, let's go. Uh, we got to the beach and set up the picnic and he became angry. He said that he thought I had planned to cook him a nice meal when I said that I would bring food for a picnic and he was not happy with the sushi I brought. What? I should add that he was into cooking and had cooked several fancy meals for me while we had been seeing each other. I'm a terrible cook and had been open about that from the the start. Before that evening, he had never made a comment about me cooking for him. He proceeded to remain angry and barely spoke to me for the remainder of the evening, ruining a summer event that I had been looking forward to. Yeah, this is not about the sushi. 
This is uh, this is emotionally punishing you for not I don't know being having sex with him. providing sex on tap on demand for not complying. Yeah, yeah. What a dick. This is the compliance test. No, this reminds me of my ex because my ex would do this all the time. Where um, you know, if I ever mildly displeased him or had a boundary, he would just like be sullen and grumpy and annoying for like days <laughs> until I don't know, just to like emotion. I call it emotional punishment. Yeah, and like I said, it's not like she said no sex forever, right? Yeah. It, it just seems like a really weird thing to suddenly throw a tantrum over. Um, something, if there's an issue, he should have communicated what the issue was and not use these side issues as punishment. Because that's emotionally ma- manipulative, right? Yeah. So, next paragraph. After this unpleasant evening, I realized that I did not want to see this guy anymore. He had shown his true colors and he was not someone I wanted in my life. I politely ended things with him over the phone a few days later. I wanted to avoid conflict, so I did not tell him that I was ending things because of his behavior on that evening. Instead, I gave him a vague explanation about how I thought we were looking for different things. Okay, cool. I want to see if he freaks out. I feel like he's going to freak out. Several days after, I realized that I had left my bathing suit at his place when I had gone swimming at the pool in his building. Since things had ended peacefully, so I thought... I figured it would be no big deal to text him and ask him to return my bathing suit. His office was near mine, so it would be simple for him to bring it to work and I could pick it up from him at lunch. When I texted him, he said that he would not be returning my bathing suit. I was shocked. I asked if we could speak on the phone so he could explain what was going on. He agreed, and I called him that evening. He proceeded to yell and scream at me over the phone about how he would never return my bathing suit and how disgusting I was for asking him. What? What? I'm just imagining him getting, like, the vein popping in his forehead from screaming about a bathing suit that doesn't belong to him. Yeah, this guy lacks emotional maturity by a lot. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, When I asked what use a man has for a bikini, he didn't have an answer, just made it clear that he would not return it. I was appalled to see this kind of behavior from a 31-year-old man, but decided I would move on. Yeah, his ego's bruised. So it just seems like when his ego feels a little bit bruised, he just flies off the handle. Yeah. And he doesn't know how to manage that or, like, depersonalize it. Yeah. Damn, this reminds me a lot of my ex. Like, what if we dated the same person? What if this is the same guy? (laughs) This this behavior is common in many guys. So, you know, true. Um, A couple of weeks after this, I started thinking about how much I liked the bathing suit and how it was almost brand new. Girl, yeah, you should have cut your losses here. Says, yeah. uh, I decided to give it one last try and texted him requesting that he return my bathing suit. He again refused, and it was extremely immature. The situation was ridiculous, and I was beyond frustrated to see a full-grown man acting like a child. I decided to cut my losses. I've learned the hard way um, with breakups, even if it's like even non-romantic breakups, like friendship breakups, or like like if you have a roommate situation, even that like you're not on the best of terms, like you're going to have to cut your losses a little bit. You want emotionally manipulative people to be mature enough to like split up and like, just you take your own, they take what's theirs and just move on with your life. But experience has taught me there's a lot of people that don't have uh, emotional regulation skills like this. Yeah. So you have to prepare for the breakup by making sure you have everything you wanted and then like break up because you just never know with people like that yeah how they're going to react and a lot of times people yeah people just hold on to things just to be just to be a dick jerks yeah for emotional blackmail to uh, keep uh trying to coerce you to talk to them like there's so many reasons why people might do stuff like this that's why whenever i'm breaking up with someone i always make sure i bring everything right down to my toothbrush because i don't want to give someone an excuse to like one of my exes um 
like he texts me every few months to be like, <laughs> like one of the times he texted me, he's like, Oh, you left some stuff at my place. And I'm like, Oh, what did, what did I leave? And he's like, Oh, just like some hair ties and like junk mail and shit. Like stuff I wouldn't want anyways. <laughs> right. Want, but it's yeah. clearly just an excuse to well, try to meet up with me. He's like, I can put it in a box and bring it to you if you like, you know, just tell me your address. No bitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, a few weeks after that, he contacted me stating that he would give me back my bathing suit if I paid him $45. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, she says I hadn't blocked him because he knew where I lived and I have a policy of not blocking men who know my address for safety reasons. Um, I was floored. This guy had a good job and did not need to extort $45 out of me. He was clearly being manipulative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I texted back that I would not be paying him any money and requested that he would not contact me again. He then texted me claiming that my message had been harassment and that he could sue me for that. What? He's cr- this guy's crazy. He's actually crazy. This guy's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, this guy's insane. He's crazy. This guy sounds like a guy on Reddit to be honest. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like a redditor. <laughs> these guys who like have these grandiose uh visions of their own power. Uh, first of all, as an FDS mod who gets a ton of harassment online and, you know, mostly just keeps that to myself, um for the most part, when guys are like, oh my god, you know, you said something I don't like, that's targeted harassment! Like, I have very little patience for people who complain about being harassed over mm. minor shit like that. Like, don't be a fucking drama king. Yeah, this is, um, this is nutso behavior from a grown man. Um, yeah. Seeing this man act like a child and try to man- manipulate me was such a discouraging experience that I was turned off from dating for quite some time. Looking back, I could see a few red flags that I missed at the time. These included him commenting that men were falsely accused of sexual assault all the time. Waving! Whoa. Massive! Red flag! Yeah. He's a rapist. When a guy says that, he's, he's actually ad- accidentally admitting that he is a rapist. Straight up. Only rapists say shit. Or only people who are rapists or want to be rapists say shit like that. Yeah, it's very, it's very strange to me. Um, bringing up ex-girlfriends early on and asking me to rent a vehicle to help him move a table to his house after only a few dates. Uh, quote, I didn't do it. However, I was not able to see how truly of a disgusting person he was until he completely took his mask off. Please roast the shit out of this groat. He deserve it, deserves it. Also, following the break I took from dating after my experience with this girl, I ended up meeting a great guy who knows how to appreciate a sushi picnic on the beach. Hooray! <laughs> Yay! Good. Yeah. Good for you, sis. Yeah, we're happy. I mean, I don't know what to say. This guy kind of roasts himself, like, just by existing. Like, his whole existence is a self-roast. He just seems crazy. He's crazy, but also, I would not be surprised if, um... You know what this sounds like to me? Honestly, it sounds like one of those, uh... He gave her one of those red pill shit tests... Uh, she didn't respond the way he thought she would or he wanted her to. And then he threw a tantrum because now he he feels like rather than express like his emotional needs or express to her uh, what he wants, um, he's like emotionally punishing her, right? Yeah. Sometimes when like guys get in these sulky moods, it's like they have, it's usually like mismatched expectations or they, yeah. or some kind of like manosphere thing. Oh, oh, test if she likes you by doing this, you know? As a general rule, I actually find it's very liberating when a guy is being sulky is to just be like, okay, you're not being funny anymore. Bye. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like guys, guys do that because they want you to try to be like, it's like a part of dread game where 
Um, yeah, that's want, what I was saying. They want Dread you to they be want like, to jump through oh no, hoops. he's mad at me. What should I do? You know, they want you to, yeah, you know, to jump through hoops or like apologize. Yeah. Yeah. To jump through hoops, to try to make him feel better. It's a way of trying to emotionally punish you into doing what he wants. And I love like ever since my last, I, like one of my exes who used to do the emotional punishment routine, I just have zero patience for that from guys. And so as soon as they start to get all sulky and, mean and like shitty i'm just like okay bye it's so fucking funny seeing their reaction because they're like wait what like they weren't expecting that they were expecting you to grovel and you know kowtow to him and i it's sad because the reason why they do that is because i'm sure a lot of women do fall into that trap of trying to you know of like self-doubt self-blame oh i should try to make him feel better that kind of shit um don't like any ladies listening in on this trust me like there's nothing more beautiful and empowering than when a guy is being a piece of shit like that and just being like okay bye you're not being fun anymore have a nice day man that sucks for you right (laughs) yeah oh that must be really hard for you of course they're probably going to go on reddit and complain about like women are so heartless they don't want you to show emotion like that kind of shit um (laughs) but who cares it's not yeah it's not even the emotion it's just like when a person is clearly punishing you he started like picking at things that were clearly not the problem like the sushi dinner right i feel like when you take the step from like not owning your shit or like owning your own problems or like communicating your own problems and just like antagonizing another person then that's a huge huge red flag this person just lacks emotional maturity of any kind emotionally immature and also like just toxic like just actively antagonistic right um yeah the other the other thing about guys who emotionally punish you like that is like they don't want you to leave. Like I find when guys start to do that emotional punishing shit and I want to like make my way to the exit, that's what, like, I remember very vividly one time my ex was doing this and it's when I had enough of the emotional punishment and he like physically would not let me leave. Like he was blocking the door, like grabbing my arm, wouldn't let me leave. And you know, like I was like, if you're not going to drive me home, then I'm just going to get a taxi or something. And so, um, and I, like, left, and then he, like, showed up at my place later. It was very creepy anyways. So, yeah, guys will, like, do this, but they want you to stick around and suffer with them. They they want you to suffer from their misery. They want you to engage. Yeah, they want you to engage. Yeah, they want you to engage. And so when you try to leave or when you drop out or when you've had enough or whatever, they're, like, they get pissed off that that's not the reaction that they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. True. Okay, so that's our roast to scrote. If you would like to submit your own roast to scrote or a queen shit or a nasus, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy um, and sign up for one of our tiers and you can listen to our bonus content and submit a story to be read out loud on the podcast. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Let's start the show. Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Ro. And this is Savannah. And I'm Lilith. Uh, Today's guest is Dr. Annie Casina. She is the author of three books, uh, one such called Do You Choose Your Dog More Carefully Than Your Husband? Um, And she specializes in helping women heal from emotional and narcissistic abuse. Dr. Annie, welcome to the pod. Thank you. It's really lovely to be with you today. So my first uh, question to you, Annie, is, you know, what is um, narcissistic abuse? um, Well, narcissistic abuse is a 
I suppose you'd call it a form of relationship which people get into unsuspectingly because they meet someone and that person sort of says the right kind of things. You get into a relationship and you have assumptions that it's all going to go really quite well, that the person's like you, and especially if you're following all the um, advice about how to date, what could possibly go wrong? And the fact is, people aren't aware of what a narcissist looks like. We're not looking for them. We don't think we know any of them, although most of us do. But narcissists are people who have a very, very good opinion of themselves. They can come across to those of us who weren't born with um, piles of confidence as being confident and therefore in some way aspirational. Their confidence is over the top. They think they're something really special. And they tend to have ideas of themselves as being somewhat better than they are. My ex-husband, my ex-husband, yes, who was a narcissist, he was a doctor in a hospital when I met him. He was laboring under the illusion that he was the guy who was actually running the hospital. Without him, it would have fallen down. So you often have that kind of belief. They believe that they're special and unique. Now, they would be horrified to think that everybody is actually special, but we're all special and we're all ordinary at the same time in reality. Um, narcissists think they're special and above other people and when they select a partner they tell that partner that he or she is special. You know, they're the kind of people who say to you, I've never met a woman like you, which actually means I've never met a woman that I actually like and at the moment you're just about passing the test. Um, they do require excessive admiration and excessive attention all the time. They tend to talk a lot about themselves. Sometimes they can talk quite interestingly about themselves, but they do love to be the centre of attention. Um, they lack empathy. They lack interest in you. They will be terribly interested at the beginning because they're on a frailty-finding mission. They're looking for your vulnerabilities. So tell me about your last relationships. How do you get on with your parents? Have you been having a tough time at work? Whatever they can, the kind of vulnerabilities they can find, they're really looking for. So they're interested in that respect, but they're not interested in you as a person, and they're not really interested in an equal relationship. What they want to know is where they can slot you into their life, not how they can open their life up to share um, with you and to experience new horizons and different ways of doing things. They can be very envious or resentful of others if they feel that others have more than they have and they will often feel it's undeserved and they often have the belief that others are envious of them <laughs> and yeah and 
that is rarely the case and they do tend to be somewhat arrogant and haughty they you know if you say that they act like the sun shines out of their bottom as often as not not you wouldn't be far wrong so that's the fairly standard um, description of a narcissist and they do feel very entitled they really do believe that everything that they want they should have they're the main character of their own story and everybody else is just a player in it bit player yes absolutely. yeah <laughs> bit player. a side extra mm. <laughs> side piece background noise yes <laughs> not even a cameo role i'm sorry but listening to that description i'm like that just sounds like an average man to me <laughs> this is where it gets complicated <laughs> Um, I think so many things have conspired to allow men to show up as more narcissistic than they might have done once upon a time. And what are some of these? Because th I've gotten that perception too. It just feels like nowadays so many people are narcissistic. I mean, women can be narcissistic too, but Absolutely. I feel like male narcissism is presents a little bit differently and is a lot more like actively harmful. I don't know. That's a curious question. Are there uh, substantial sex differences between how narcissism presents in women versus men? I think there are subtle differences. I think that men will swan into your life, narcissistic men, and it is a great deal of, look at me, I'm wonderful. And we're trained to go, oh, yes, you're wonderful. I will look at you. <laughs> and I think women will swan in narcissistic women and they're more like to say, likely to say, oh, look at you. You're wonderful initially and offer loads of sex um, and hook a man that way. And then they start to reveal themselves more. So it seems like women are more likely to present it in a, a more covert way. Because I've heard of covert narcissism where often, yeah. uh, often like their intentions are concealed. Whereas for men, because I would say like the social punishment isn't as high for uh, men who express their own narcissistic tendencies that they are probably more likely to be upfront about their intentions. <laughs> Absolutely. There are covert male narcissists too, of course, and they come in... And that sort of look at me, I've had such a hard time. People are horrible to me, but I'm a genius, really. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <you know. laughs> I was raised by narcissists. I've dated narcissists. So all of this is like really confirming. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So relatable. Thank you, though. Mm, you and I both. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's so many things going on. There are so many narratives. Um, you know, the shift with feminism and men got frightened. So now we have to accommodate to frightened men. We have to worry about them. You know, um, so we've got to we've got to compensate. I think a whole lot of our sexual freedom somehow has been twisted to benefit men. For sure. Oh, let us tell you about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we talk about that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that that is part of why I think FDS um, really blew up the way that it did. I mean, we obviously, we started on Reddit, but we got a ton of media coverage. And a lot of it is because we took aim at some of the um, narratives that were being 
propagated in sex positive culture and pointing out the fact that, you know, this really kind of leads you very vulnerable to a lot of abuse and narcissism. Absolutely. Right. Because like a lot of the, the ideas that you're trying to um, emulate behaviors that are common in men mm-hmm. or all, you're just not doing the proper self-protection that a person would do with a stranger. Right. Yeah. Or you're just doing things that benefit men and not yes. yourself. Yes. Yeah. Some face. Um, yes. I mean, you just have to look at sexual trends and think really, you know, yeah. do women really want to go out and have men choking them in a friendly way? Of course. Oh, it's consensual strangulation. Totally. Like <laughs> I just, I just resent the idea that it's, well, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I resent the idea that that's become normalized. I think the, mm. when it was kink and it was like deliberately a fringe sexual activity, then people knew it was taboo. And then, yeah. you know, you'd have to discuss that with your partner it was more expected. But now I think because it's become so normalized via porn or cultural influences or sex posi feminism that they've, it's really, really pushed a lot of sexual violence to the forefront and made it a normalized sexual practice when it really shouldn't have ever been. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, now it's like expected of women. And if you don't do it, you're, you know, frigid or close-minded or, you know. No pressure. Yeah. Mm. No pressure. Yeah. Um, I'm just on the topic of, you know, sex and pornography, Annie. Um, Is there any, you know, link or any, I guess, um, you know, behaviours that, or sexual behaviours that are narcissistic person would exhibit that's different to normal sexual behavior just a small question then um so i think this is a really difficult one Um, the crazy thing at bottom is that narcissists don't really like women some of them are hypersexual and then they pride themselves on being super stud. And I had a client whose husband was hypersexual, and at one point he was having affairs with people all the time and telling her about them. And he kind of reached the stage where, provided he wasn't driving her mad, it was not that, she wasn't that bothered. But he would boast about how he would give them the best sex of their life kind of thing. But the interesting thing was they didn't want to see him again. Mr. Superstud did such a good <laughs> no repeat customers. Job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be- because there was a sort of, oh, it it was kind of screwing by numbers thing, I guess. So some of them are hypersexual, some of them are not. And the one thing that sex is not for narcissists is an act of intimacy. They yeah. will use sex as a weapon and they will withhold sex as a weapon a lot. And people who withhold sex from a partner, you can't say that they really like that partner. It is about the narcissistic supply, right? Like it's about yeah. uh, the conquest, the the idea that they could get one over on the next person. Yes, and control, of course. 
I'm always very fascinated. I have a small dog who had to be castrated because he's a little bit sexy. Um, when, he, when he plays with his toys and he gets excited, he still tries to hump them. And that always reminds me that um, narcissists do use sex for control, power and control. Yeah. But it's about the domination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Also, I find narcissists love porn. Is that just me, or is there any research behind that? Uh, in my experience, they don't all love porn, but it stands to reason that a lot of them would. I mean, you know, there are always um, differences between people. Narcissism, I know it's, they say it covers a broad spectrum and so on, but there are actually differences in the way some narcissists show up to others. Right, because I know I know a lot of re religious narcissists, mm. and they're not into the porn thing, right? So the other side of that coin, where like they just see everyone who's into anything that could be construed as lascivious as inherently beneath them, it's just mm. what, I, what I'm guessing. Anyways, it seems to be to manifest on my experience. Just whatever their social pecking order is, or their social environment is, like it'll shape what their particular. What their particular brand of narcissism, how it manifests. Yeah, their particular yes. brand of narcissism will be shaped by their environment. Dare I be really naughty and just throw into the mix that I have uh, knowledge of one narcissist, a religious narcissist, who being a good soul decided to leave his wife and go off and save an escort and marry her. What? Why? Right. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> you know they'll they'll do what they want, and then at least my experience with such people, they'll do yeah. what they'll they want, and then like create a narrative, a backwards narrative, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to try to spin it to say to make themselves look like they're in the know, they're uh, or they're just not a bad person because they want to look like they're doing things for altruistic reasons. Yeah. Which is you no know, obviously highly manipulative because it's a way to you know obscure their true intentions uh, for you or the other person. Yeah, they always do that. And in marriages, the number of women I've heard from who's who said, my husband told me it's my fault he had affairs. How does that one work? Yeah, narcissists are spin masters. Yes. Spin doctors. <clears throat> yeah, spin doctors. And to be fair, um, as a person who grew up in more religious, religious communities, a lot of times there is community pressure on these women. So they feel that way, right? It's not like it's just the narcissist. Sometimes that is very much reinforced by the rest of the environment. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I know part of, part of FDS's work, and I think we discovered this as we started talking about relationships and figuring out where we were getting these kinds of narratives or these kind of women blaming narratives and these victim blaming narratives. Um, and some of it, a lot of it comes from the media. Some obviously some of it comes from like traditional religious conservative mm -hmm. type communities, but um what do you think about that? Like, how did, see, I almost can see that, um, like, like male narcissism or in particular can be kind of potent because it can shape, uh, entire cultures or shape entire like environments to, uh, antagonize women. Sadly it does. And religious environments of whatever flavor are great places for narcissists to thrive in. We, we are always meant to, you know, support and be loyal to them and defer and to forgive. Our, yeah, forgive, 
defer, tolerate, yeah. They are very unfortunate environments and they make it much harder for women to to leave. Yeah. And when you leave a narcissist, you may well have to leave your place of worship too. You lose the community along with the narcissist who are shown in that community. Um, so moving on to, you know, dating, um, Annie, mm. what's in the dating stage? What Are there any signs that women can look out for? of of narcissistic behavior or red flags that they can look out for when they're in the dating stage well there are so many the first one is the instant soulmate you know he's the guy who pops up in your life and you're his soulmate or his twin flame or whatever nonsense language he uses and he's going to be with you forever he loves you forever, and you've been with him for five minutes. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's really worrying. So with that, that's actually interesting because I always thought that was indicative of a guy with low self-esteem, like the love bomber, the ones that try to... I mean, I find narcissists at their heart do have low self-esteem, but the whole exactly. reason oh. why they exist the way that they do is to try to not feel bad about that, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but there's also the more practical thing, which is a narcissist is looking for something. He's got a vacancy in his life that he needs to fit, to fill. And since he's not terribly interested in another person, and they're very quick to register the right kind of person for them, why hang about? Why not just go for it? Um, and I think this is a really important thing that people often don't get, that narcissists can clock you very quickly. Yeah. Um, I did an interview with a narcissist recently and he was saying you can just tell they literally can because they have this kind of sixth sense for a woman who's a little bit shy, a little bit lacking in confidence, a little bit vulnerable and they they can sense it and they go for it quickly. You know, it's kind of like you're hungry. You want a meal now. You're not going to wait for a three-course meal, or they're not. They'll just shove um, junk food down their neck. They're not bothered about really getting to know you. So they're very fast wooers. They, um, if you listen to them, they will talk rather a lot in cliches. Their, their romantic game is stolen more often than not from this sort of kind of chiclet stuff um, and movies. Um. Yeah, I was just about to say a lot of like the media narratives that we get about like love at first sight yeah. and, <sighs> you know, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll know your soulmate the moment you, you know, I laid eyes <sighs> on them and fell in love kind of thing. Right. And I, I, you know, growing up as a kid, you almost, think oh mm. that's just like what true love is and then you mm. grow up and realize that that's actually not how it is it's actually a red flag it's the reddest of red flags yes first they love you you know they and they're going to sweep you off their feet your feet they love you like nobody else has loved you before and nobody else else ever will again if you're lucky and then they start to isolate you they love you so much they want to spend every minute with you yeah. A friend of mine told me about her 
narcissist and she married him and she said darling darling I've always wanted a cat can we have a cat and he said no we can't have a cat I don't want you to ha I don't want a cat to come between us wow <laughs> that reminds me of my ex who didn't like my dog he was yep. jealous of my dog yep <laughs> that's, that's normal uh, my book came about because my then husband told me I had to choose between him and the dog dog I choose dog 100% of the time yes no. yes my mouth answered before I had time to think mm -hmm. I said it's got to be the dog yeah um, but so yeah they do that um as I said, they, they do slot you into their life. And, they, and then they start playing games with you. Everything that you tend to be doing is what they want to do. And they start maybe not telling the truth or maybe getting annoyed with you about something to see how you react. They have an unreasonable moment to see what you do. Is this like a sort of compliance testing? Absolutely, yeah. They, it's something or other. My ex, just to give you an example, we were going somewhere and we drove somewhere and it was a hot day. And he turned the engine off, sat in the car, didn't move. I said, are we not going into the coffee shop that we're going to? He said, I'm tired closed his eyes and said, I need some sleep, and just did that <laughs> for half an hour. And idiot face sat there. I knew something was terribly wrong, but I sat there because I thought he was a wonderful man and he was having a blip. That was no blip. That was the compliance test. And I passed with flying colours. I did nothing. And then when they've done that, they know that they can up the ante and up the ante, and you'll probably take an awful lot from them. Yeah, we talked about this um, in another podcast about the boiling frog theory about how <laughs> it's it's so insidious with with people like this because it's you know yeah. they never they never throw you in a hot pot of water you know when they're doing their compliance test. It is a slow... Yeah, abusers don't punch you in the, on the, in the face on the first date. Like, no, they don't. It's a slow escalation. Don't. And sometimes... Sometimes... Mm. Well, yes, yeah, <laughs> most of them don't. But there's a few uh, really nut, nutty dudes out there. Um, I guess uh, with like understanding that, how long do you think it typically takes for a narcissist to start to... I start the slow escalation or is it like an immediate thing? And then as a person who might, who may not ne necessarily recognize the first compliance test, um, mm. how long should you kind of, is there like a timeline you should monitor to kind of start to see, okay, if this person escalates from this, t this time to this time, it's probably a red flag that they're a narcissist. Um, I think that's a rather misleading way of looking at it. I so you probably will see stuff within little hints and they may be able to keep up a facade for three or six months, but I think there are other ways of looking at it which are more constructive. One is uh, definitely three strikes and you're out. 
So instead of watching that person all the time and in a sense letting go of some of your power, you start from the premise that if I see three behaviors that I don't like, even if they're not huge, that uh, I'm out. Because in the early part of your dating experience, someone is likely to be on their best behavior. And if their best behavior isn't that good, you've got serious worries about what's coming further down the line. So that's one thing. One Another thing that I feel strongly about is running your own temper tantrum test. And that is doing something not wildly provocative, but something that a narcissist or someone could find annoying and seeing how they respond. So, for example, when I met my lovely partner, we were going out to the cinema one night and by mistake, in fact, I let things run late so we didn't get to the cinema for the beginning of the film. Now, I knew exactly how my ex-husband would have behaved you know, nuclear explosions. Uh, so it was interesting to see how this person I didn't know very well would ex respond. And he was remarkably placid. So that was a, a really useful test, you know. How do they respond? And when they get angry, how angry do they get? Um, so that's part of it. I think also when there is no time to stop monitoring behavior. Not three months down the line, not six months down the line, not a year down the line. At any time when the behavior is unacceptable, that's a good time to leave, to cut your losses. And the other thing is that narcissistic behavior deteriorates the more confident they are that they have got you. So in the first few months of dating, when you're a free individual and they've got to make the sale, they will be relatively well behaved. Once you either move in together or get engaged, they're more confident. Their behavior can start to deteriorate. If you marry, that's a good opportunity for them to get much worse. If you have a child together, then you, as they see it, that's another bond and their behavior will deteriorate even more. If you're financially dependent on them, that's another thing that's tying you to them. So their behavior will um, deteriorate still more. So there will be a progressive deterioration over time. And it's really important never to say, yeah, but we've been together for a while and relationships get worse, so I guess I can just put up with it. You've always got to be noticing and protecting your own best interest. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with the three strikes and you're out... I almost feel like that's too generous. Like I, I'm of a one strike and you're out. Two strikes, maybe tops. If the first one was not that bad, but um, it just it feels yeah. like to me whenever I've seen 
whenever I've experienced people like this, the first strike is never, it's always something that could be chalked up to a misunderstanding, right? Oh, I forgot my wallet, right? Or, you know, something that's like, maybe that's actually maybe a little bit more obvious, but there's times where in hindsight, I, it makes sense in aggregate of their behavior, but Mm -hmm. the first time just never registers as more than perhaps a, uh, a, a slight uh, miscommunication, right? Or at least they'll try to paint it that way to you, right? And that's, yeah. I think that's always the hardest part because once I, once I've been around someone long enough to establish like, okay, this is a pattern with this person, but that, you know, like you said, it could take maybe a month or two at least to reveal themselves, but it's never like the first or second time where I'm thinking like immediately this person's a narcissist until I start to realize that this is a habit. Yeah, that's why I said three strikes. Sometimes the first strike really could be good enough, but by three strikes, <laughs> pardon me, you should be staring in the face the fact that this person is off in some way that will only get worse with time. So once a woman is in the you know, web of a narcissist, it can be really hard to leave. And so, you know, we hear a lot, you know, oh, if he was abusive, why didn't you just leave him? Hmm. So can you tell us a bit about, you know, why is it so challenging to, you know, once you're in it, why is it so challenging to recognize what's happening and what are the barriers that keep women from leaving? Or why do some women, you know, keep coming back to these sorts of men? It's incredibly hard to leave these people. Um, They have promised you the best dream of your life. That's the first thing. And it's really hard to give up on that dream. We women kind of work this thing that, well, if his behavior could get worse, it could get better as well. And Mm. I know he's got so much potential. And it's kind of my responsibility to make that potential the reality. So that's a part of it, the the dream that you do not want to give up on. Mm -hmm. You've also got a narrative going on in your head that you're in the last chance saloon and the narcissist will have done their bit to put it there as well. So you've got that going on. If the narcissist has done his job right, he will have started to isolate you from other people. There will be a perceived loss of status if you have to admit that this dream, which was so fantastic, you know, you're the happiest woman alive and everything, and it's gone sour, that if you have to do that, that's really hard. There might be financial issues as well. If they're good at what they do, you will find that your money is tied up with them and hard to get out of their clutches. You know, you might have bought a property together, which, strange enough, is just in their name. That happens. Um, And then there's this thing that when you're with a narcissist, there is this constant denial going on. You know, you let the first um, bad behavior go and the second one and the third one. And then you start to tell yourself, well, it's probably not so bad. Every relationship has its problems. It's probably my fault, like he says it is. And emotionally, 
you go into deep denial. And then there's the other aspect that the person has been chipping away at your self-worth big time. So it's quite a cocktail that mm -hmm. makes it very, very hard to leave. And they always tell you that you couldn't survive without them. So it's really, really hard. And if you have children, then there's the narrative about you want your children to have a two-parent home. There are many, many reasons why it's incredibly hard to leave. So with that in mind, then, what do you, you know, given all of these challenges, what do you recommend for women who are in the middle of that? <laughs> you know, how, how do you overcome those? Well, I think we're incredibly blessed now with platforms like Instagram, where you can, first of all, Google and read about stuff and absorb information until it reaches the point when you go, ah, this isn't just him having a bad day or being stressed. This is a syndrome that I'm stuck in. So you can get a lot of information and education there. And then you really want to plan your exit. Uh, you, and you want support. It helps if you have someone who you can turn to. Mm -hmm. It helps if you still have friends that you can speak to who will run reality checks with you. Because it's not easy to get out. It helps to go to have any kind of group or one-on-one -on -one support that you can have, but ideally from people who really understand narcissistic abuse, because otherwise you can get some crazy information. It doesn't help to go to things like couples counselling because the narcissist can usually lie so convincingly that the therapist will tell you that you're the crazy one. Yep. And you oh boy. <laughs> That's one of our biggest gripes with the platform Reddit is that when a woman is saying that her partner has done something egregious, mm. the common reframe is, oh, just communicate. Or just, just tell him that you don't counseling. like... Or, yes. couples, or, just, or just like tell him that you don't like him, you know, raping you in your sleep. Just tell him that, communicate. And yes. it's like, no, <laughs> no. I think Absolutely. like a lot of couples counselling, I mean it only really works if you've got, if both parties are, you know, wanting to improve and like are invested and are not. And if they're not abusive yeah, as well. Abusive, yeah. yeah. But like once you're talking about like one person having a narcissist, yeah. Couples counseling is just a scam. It's a disaster. It's so, it's so difficult too, because psychology and, you know, mental health fields have a long history of having like certain ideological captures. Right. I know in a lot of religious communities, there's a lot of like, you know, Christian or Catholic or mm. uh, Muslim type um, counselors. And so a lot of times they'll recommend that you go to counselors like these, but they may already have like a predisposed outcome in mind because of their religious or ideological restrictions. Right. So, Absolutely. you know, I know for Christian counseling, you know, the end game is always like keeping marriages together. So there's mm. a lot of times where you, I think women in particular get are vulnerable to being coaxed into staying in situations that are really, really horrible for them because the outcome that is always pushed on them is that 
the preservation of the marriage is um, more important than your individual well-being or even happiness. Yeah, absolutely. It drives me crazy. Um, I have worked with quite a few people in that situation um, to winkle them out of those hopeless marriages. Yeah. It's always like, you're not a godly enough woman, you should pray more, then your husband will stop beating you, that kind of stuff. And and to not beat up on, like, the right wing or, like, the conservatives too much, there, there's also that, I think, in um, more liberal institutions as well, because we've talked about how there's been a lot of these, quote-unquote, sex therapists and psychologists that push a lot of, like, uh, abusive kink onto people as, like, some kind of cure-all, right? And it can be kind of dangerous, because if you're dealing with a guy who already likes power and control, and then you introduce the idea of kink well now you're just giving over the reins for him to freely abuse you in public or like freely abuse you openly <laughs> yeah it's like a secular religion in a way i think with all of these things people i've done it and i know plenty of other people have done that we've gone to see psychologists therapists and we have trusted that they were fit for purpose and we have to make that decision whether we believe they're fit for purpose. We cannot rely on them having the appropriate expertise and sensitivity. We have to ensure that for ourselves. Um, and I think this whole conversation really is about nothing um, gets in the way of you needing to do your own due diligence about partners and therapists and everything related to relationships. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to ask about the impact on people who may have had narcissistic parents. Um, I guess bef before before they start dating, you know, you know, what would you suggest that these people do to ensure that they don't also pick out a narcissistic partner? Because... If that's what you're used to growing up, it's totally. very easy to fall into that pattern again. Yeah. Um, if you've been brought up by narcissists, as I was too, um, that's exactly what you're trained to. Um, and you will probably go on to marry your, a narcissistic parent. The problem, of course, is that when you leave a narcissistic home, you may not realize, first of all, how bad they were, and second, how, how unlikely you are to be able to make safe choices for yourself. So I've known so many women who've looked at their fathers and said, God, anything but that I will not marry that and then they have gone on to marry a different um, iteration of precisely that because we assume that we're savvier at relationships than we actually are so what's required is a whole lot of diligence and instead of rushing headlong into relationships which is so romantic and the way we do things nowadays it's all about stepping back and learning who you are and how you want your relationship to look it's a really big one i work with women often in middle age and i say to them Describe to me your ideal partner. 
And they go, well, he has to be solvent and he has to be kind and he has to share my interests. And I say yes. And they say, well, we don't want any addictions. Yes. And what else? And they really don't know. They agree that he has to eat without spraying food everywhere, and that he has to change his underwear daily. But they know so little about how they want to be treated in a relationship. And that is absolutely key. If you know how you want to be treated, how you want to feel in that relationship, then you've got some kind of yardstick against which you can measure the people that you date. Um, so, so women don't even think, I want to feel safe with this person. I want to feel that they love me all the time. I had a wake-up moment one time when I was sitting on a boat with my horrible husband and there was a couple opposite us and they had young children so they'd been married a while and what struck me was that every time the husband looked at the wife he had a smile in his eyes mm. and I looked at my husband and thought you never had a smile that reach your, reaches your eyes you miserable bastard I was right, <laughs> he hadn't um, so, and this is an important kind of thing to be thinking about. Um, you know, what would you like your ideal, what would you like a Tuesday to feel like two years into the relationship with your husband? What would you be doing together? How would it feel? You know, what would a trip to the supermarket together feel like? This, I think that's, I think that's really powerful and important, Annie, because you know when we you know we read about um i guess disastrous relationships mm. it's easy to think like how can you s he's making you feel like shit most of the yeah. time how can you be happy with that but that but they're obviously not happy but mm. it's 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 a really really good way to put any relationship into perspective and it's ultimately what any good relationship whether it's either romantic or platonic should come down to is or does this person make me feel good yeah. majority if not all of the time and yeah. that's what it should come down to absolutely it's not their job to make you happy like to lift your depressed mood if you have one but it is their job to not bring you down and the problem is, particularly if you've grown up with narcissistic parents, you have grown up as miserable as hell. And misery feels like a normal state. Yep. So that it's very easy to settle for a narcissist who makes you feel as miserable hell because, as hell because that is the way that you know the world works. That's why you have to do work on yourself to unlearn those beliefs and find out how happiness works yeah i find when you're raised by narcissists there's also so many ways that they just sort of psychologically break you you know and groom you to be more vulnerable to abuse later in life like you know you're mm. you feel ashamed about having boundaries or you're groomed out of the concept of having boundaries mm -hmm. at all or that um 
you know, you feel a lot of anxiety about, you know, your partner being mad at you or people being mad at you. And you feel, you know, like you have to be in this sort of people pleasing state all the time, just like for survival, you know, you tend to be more like self-sacrificial and, you know, mm-hmm. cause you know, growing as a, a child of a narcissist, you're groomed to serve the parent or to, you know, be their supply. And so they almost sort of like pre groom you for, you know, future abusive partners. And it makes it so much harder to, to, yeah, identify what you want or to, you know, say no to things that don't bring you happiness. Yeah, absolutely. And since when was your happiness ever meant to be important if you're brought up exactly. by narcissists? Yeah. So it's really important to learn how to do you, what makes you happy, how you want to live, and what you're looking for in a partner that will bring joy to your life. And also getting this idea, which you will not have had from a narcissistic parent, that you bring real value to relationships. And if you're bringing real value to relationships, it's not unreasonable to find someone who will appreciate that and who brings something valuable as well. The projection from narcissists is what makes it so much harder too. Like they'll tell you that you're the selfish one or that Mm. you're the, you know, Mm. demand, you're the one being demanding and so on. And so you think that by having Mm. any expectations at all, like it makes you the narcissist or something. Right. So, um, it's so hard to even know what reality is almost, (laughs) but let's talk about recovery. Um, because that's, I think the hardest part of all Mm. of this is, you know, it's one thing to spot red flags. It's one thing to leave. And I find, the recovery is something that can be, you know, years in the making. Um, so what yep. do you like, what is, what does that look like? How does one recover from emotional abuse or especially narcissistic emotional abuse? This is something I have been working on for a really long time for myself and clients as well. I think the first thing is to understand the difference between what you're feeling and what reality is. So we all stagger out of a narcissistic relationship and we feel broken and we're damaged goods and it's all over for us and there'll never be anyone so wonderful again. And we have all of these beliefs and, and we're worthless and useless and whatever else as well. And we have all of these beliefs which we believe mm-hmm. to be true. And they are just beliefs. We are not broken. Um, it is not all over for us. And certainly there's far better to come once you get away from narcissists. But it's a very difficult uh, thing to understand. I, it's, sorry, it's a very difficult thing to get your head around. And I love what Robert Holden says, which is that if you think about babies, they come into the world happy. Essentially, you know, they have their moments, but they come into the world happy. Happiness is hardwired Mm -hmm. into us. You know, you don't teach a baby to be happy. Babies can learn over time not to be happy, but that happiness was hardwired into them, into all of us. And we can always 
go back, get rid of all the programming that we've learned and get back to being happy. I love that. And we are, yeah, it's, for me, that was the first huge mind shift. What I find is that all clients I've worked with are all so much more resilient than you would think they are. And we are all so much more resilient than we think we are. Um, I've worked with women who've been through absolute nightmares, real nightmares, war-torn countries and God knows what, and come back from there and started to feel happy very much faster than they would have thought mm -hmm. they could. So I think it's really important to hold on to this fact that you're not broken, you have this capacity to be, capacity to be happy and whole, and it's a question of tapping into it. So that for me is huge. What I do with pretty much anyone I speak to is I annoy them by urging them to write out their 20 celebrations a day. Um, and I started doing this when I was working with women in refuges who were that sh women's shelters, which was really the worst place because they'd just come out of these nightmare relationships and they had limited resources, limited finances. And I said, you're going to have to write down 20 things you have to celebrate every day. I don't like the word grateful because a lot of us have been forced to feel grateful for things we never Thank wanted. Thank you. Anyway. <laughs> totally agree. But I hate the word gratitude. Yeah. I remember when yeah. I, all of my worst bosses would be like, tell me what you're grateful. Like they had, they'd all have like speeches about what we should yeah. feel grateful for. And it's like, oh, thank you so much for not giving me a raise this year and, you know, giving me some bullshit speech instead. <laughs> Yeah, like forcing yeah. you to be grateful for things that you like should be allowed to be mad about. But anyways, yeah, 20 celebrations. Yes. So gr gratitude can be really quite abuse used abusively in that respect. So 20 celebrations every day before you go to bed at night. And this is really hard yeah. when you're depressed. You know, it's really hard to find too. So what am I grateful for? My day's been ghastly. Ah, oh, I have a bed to sleep in. I have a roof over my head. I have running water and so on and so on. Oh, and someone smiled at me today. And once you start to program your mind, uh, before I can get to sleep tonight, I've got to write out my 20 celebrations. You actually have to train your mind to look for positive mm -hmm. things, which is what you don't do when you're feeling God-awful. So you start looking for positive things, and it actually starts to shift your mood over time. It starts to make you feel better, even when times are really tough. So that's another really powerful thing you can start to do for yourself. All it costs is the price of a notebook. Um, and then, obviously, you want to get some education and you want to get whatever help you can. Ideally, you want expert professional help. If money gets in the way, then 
honestly these days there's there's so many resources on YouTube and Instagram and everywhere else that you can start to consume and take from them what you can I think that healing is some kind of weird cocktail that in the end you mix for yourself um, you mix it with everything that helps to lift you um, so a friend of mine was in a ghastly abusive relationship and she couldn't leave she had a small child she had no money she was desperate she's in a country <clears throat> pardon me a long way from home and she couldn't do anything and I said yes you can you have to be able to do something and the only thing she would concede that she could do was take a hot bath every day she was so busy looking after her child that she often didn't mm. even wash so she did this small act of self-care every day she had a hot bath she had a bubble bath then being British she decided she had to have a cup of tea while she's in the bath and then she decided that if she's having a cup of tea while she's in the bath it, she'd have to have a biscuit as well this is British stuff and then if she's having a cup of tea and a biscuit she had to read in the bath for a while and she did that too and then she left her husband that little bit of self-care really lifted her it took her into a different headspace so that's another important thing you can do for yourself and then obviously there are the conventional things like uh, finding out what your hobbies are, what you like to do, what lifts your heart, what brings you joy, how you can change your mood when you're feeling down. Um, and being very, very patient with yourself. Taking should out of your vocabulary. What does that mean by taking should out of your vocabulary? Well, if you listen to anybody who's come out of a toxic relationship, should comes in every sentence. I should have done this. I should have known better. I should be feeling better by now. I shouldn't be feeling like this after mm -hmm. all this time. I should. Right. I shouldn't. Yeah. That's taking should out of your yeah. vocabulary. Um, and if you must carry on replacing it with I could so I could be feeling better by now that doesn't make sense at all and then you start to notice that you're punishing yourself with all these mm. shoulds does that yeah. make sense yeah so starting to tune in to yourself and being kind to yourself if you've got the stomach for it, you can do some mirror work. That's where you stand and you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't go, God, I didn't know I had this second chin or I didn't know I had this new wrinkle or whatever or my bum looks big in this. It's where you look at yourself and say, I really feel for you. You're going through this and you're doing the best you can or find something calm and kind to say to each other to yourself but again 
mirroring can be a bit hard if you're having a real issue with yourself. Mm -hmm. Mirror work. Um, so these are some of the things that you can do. Affirmations can work if you find affirmations that fit with where you are. So every day in every way I'm getting better is not going to land well with you if you're feeling awful. Um, I know this is really hard and I'm doing the best I can. And for today, that's good enough, is a different kind of affirmation that might work for you. It's, yes, yeah, so there is this element of being mindful, being present to yourself, treating yourself the way you would a friend who is desperately upset or a child who is hurting. Instead of treating yourself like your narcissistic partner or parent treated you. Yeah, that helps a lot. Thank you. Do you have anything coming up, Annie, that you would like to let our listeners know about? Well, I've got a couple of things that uh, could be useful to your listeners. I have my free healing affirmations for dark times on my website, which is w which is https uh, recoverfromemotionalabuse.com. So that's a free download, healing affirmations for dark times. And also one thing which we haven't really talked about is boundaries, uh, which is a big problem for survivors of narcissistic abuse. Um, I know it was it Euro who said that you come out of a narcissistic relation family I think that was without me. boundaries? Yeah. You're basically trained not to have any boundaries right. when you're raised by narcissists. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you get out into the outside world, all these helpful people give you a load of advice that is um, either not sensitive or not helpful because you're not where the advice is. And they say to you, you should get boundaries. You should have boundaries. And you end up going, yeah, yeah, I need boundaries. I'm going to get some boundaries. And then you go home and think, what the hell even is a boundary? How do I do this thing? So having been in that situation and worked with a load of women who knew they needed boundaries and punished themselves because they didn't have them and didn't know how to get them, I created this little program which just teaches you to break the old patterns of people-pleasing and sacrificing yourself and working for crumbs of affection that you're never going to get and being frightened of saying no to people and instead create the kind of boundaries that will help you in all areas of your life, that will help you have healthy friendships, um, healthier workplace relationships, have a healthy relationship with your work, and also have a better relationship with narcissistic parents uh, part and folk generally. I was going to say narcissistic partners, but you'll never have a healthy relationship with them. But if you do have to have a relationship with a narcissistic ex, it really helps 
if you do have boundaries so that you can limit your interactions in such a way that you don't get wounded by them again. So I have this program which is called Breaking Old, the Breaking Old Patterns Toolkit and that's available from full address is www.breakingoldpatterns.com so it's https uh, colon slash slash www.breakingoldpatterns.com and that's a um, paying program but it's a it's $39 and it will give you an awful lot of insights and new ways of seeing the world and dealing with difficult people so that you don't feel that you are suddenly stripped of your personal power. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your insight. It's a pleasure. I love what you're doing and it's been absolutely wonderful to speak with you today. Well, we're, we're honored to be able to have you on the show. And that's our show. Please check out our website at thefemaledatingstrategy.com, as well as our Twitter, at femdatstrat. And if you'd like to hear additional bonus content, as well as submit your own roast to scrow and our brand new Discord that we have for our level up and queen tier members, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thefemaledatingstrategy. Thanks for listening, queens, and for all you practitioners of the clownological arts, die mad. See you next week. Mm-hmm.